You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity, and politics, with Ali Ahmed. First, a warning. This episode deals with mature and sensitive subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Former movie mogul Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison for rape and sexual assault in what is being called a pivotal moment in the Me Too movement. The movement against sexual harassment and abuse spread virally on social media in the wake of widespread exposure of the allegations against Weinstein, but it has spread well past Hollywood and now is truly an international movement. As several prominent Muslim figures like Tariq Ramadan and Noman Ali Khan have faced allegations of misconduct, Muslim women have raised their voices against spiritual and sexual abuse and against the culture of silence. Episode 10 of the podcast, the final episode of Season 1, features Professor Zahra Ayubi, an assistant professor of religion at Dartmouth College and author of Gendered Morality, Classical Islamic Ethics of the Self, Family, and Society. The first thing Professor Ayubi and I talked about was the importance of not conflating spiritual abuse and sexual abuse. And that distinction is important. When I was an articling student in Calgary, the Friday prayer preacher offered me money to help him in a scheme to skirt the mortgage down payment rules. Although I said no, that's something that could be considered spiritual abuse. Sexual abuse may have spiritual abuse elements, but lumping sexual abuse cases into spiritual abuse cases hides its seriousness and potentially its criminality. Here's how Professor Ayubi describes the issue. I think the definitional question is a really important one. So spiritual abuse is generally, I guess, defined as a religious authority figure taking advantage of usually it's a man, so usually his position of authority to demand unethical or illegal favors from someone. And it's often, but not always, framed as a religious duty to help with whatever favor that the figures are demanding. So whether it's some kind of collusion on a fraud or strong-arming someone to get them to do something that they wouldn't do otherwise or perhaps blackmailing them for it. These are all the kinds of things that come under spiritual abuse. And I think that, sure, sexual abuse is one kind of spiritual abuse. But then lumping it in there, you know, lumping it under the spiritual abuse category both minimizes the extent to which it happens. So it's as if it's like one among many ways that people experience abuse. And then also it serves as sort of a euphemism to uphold the taboo of openly talking about the important issues of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. So, you know, it's saying, oh, well, it's a spiritual abuse. And so, you know, whatever that's supposed to mean, and oftentimes people aren't familiar with that term because it's not as popular as, say, sexual abuse is a term that people are familiar with in the news and the media and so on. But spiritual abuse seems to be confusing to a lot of people. Sexual abuse falls under that broader category of people, of religious authority figures abusing their power, but we should not be afraid of or shy of using the actual term of what it is and not lump it under spiritual abuse so that it actually gets its due. The conversations are much more explicit and and open. One of the most striking things about the Me Too movement was the sheer volume of women coming forward, and that those open and explicit conversations started to actually take place. And while some Muslims might still believe that abuse does not occur in their communities, that it's only the Catholic priests or a product of Western lifestyles, that's simply not the case. 
The recent Herma Project conference in Chicago was all about issues related to spiritual and sexual abuse in Muslim communities. I asked Professor Ayubi about this perception that this wasn't a Muslim problem. One of the things she mentioned was that as Muslim women feel able to report these cases, the true scope of the problem will become clear. So it will seem like it's getting worse, but only then will it start to get better. It's safe to say that this is, in fact, a Muslim problem. In many Muslim countries, 99% of women surveyed, and I don't know the efficacy or the sampling errors in the surveys, but you know there have been surveys that show 99% of women report having been sexually harassed in their lifetime. These numbers, they can vary and aren't without their problems, but they're really telling of how sexual abuse, sexual violence, and harassment are, are really... Muslim problems as much as they are problems among other religious communities, religious groups worldwide. And within the United States, again, there's really no way of knowing specifically about Muslim communities. But if the rate of incident reporting, increased incidence reporting is any indication, it certainly is a problem within the Muslim community. The Me Too movement has its origins all the way back to 2006 on MySpace, but it didn't go viral until 2017 when a number of prominent female celebrities began to use the Me Too hashtag. Muslims have had their own celebrity cases like Numan Ali Khan, the preacher who was accused of luring women into secret marriages, and scholar and academic Tariq Ramadan who's facing rape accusations in France. I asked Professor Ayubi for her view on the impact of these celebrity cases on the Muslim community. You know, if social media posts are any indication of what community responses are like, since a lot of this is playing out on social media and and YouTube and so on, then it's these celebrity cases have really ended up dividing the community, often along gendered lines, but not always. So the celebrity cases, first of all, they might ultimately serve to increase reporting because so much is at stake and on the line for survivors and victims that reporting is often out of the question. And so celebrity cases might actually sort of help to encourage women to come forward. You know, if so-and-so came forward, maybe I should come forward. And so that might be there. But again, so much is on the line. So one of the things that happens as a result of these celebrity cases and you know, Naman Ali Khan, Tariq Ramadan, I can think of, you know, several others, is that you get a sense of who in a given community is willing to believe women, just that, as simple as something as believing someone's story, and who is willing to accept that these kinds of ugly things happen within Muslim communities. And it speaks to the issue of silence as being sort of the primary method for how the Muslim community has so far and historically before social media dealt with sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And so with the great attention on celebrity cases, you know, lots of people become sensitive to the kinds of Islamophobic or anti-Muslim sentiment that these celebrity cases invite. So that actually serves as a very difficult barrier, even larger, almost insurmountable barrier for Muslim women to come forward with their abuse experiences to out somebody who they have had this abusive relationship for potentially for years because they fear that the community will, in addition to not believing them because they would rather believe the religious authority figure, 
in addition to that, our fear, the the kinds of Islamophobic discourses that it invites and the scrutiny, perhaps, especially in the United States, you know, scrutiny and surveillance that that might invite. So the celebrity cases, they sort of work both ways, I think. there's The, the stakes become even higher, but there might also be encouragement as far as coming forward to report. I want to dive a little bit deeper on this issue of silence, because that has been the predominant approach to abuse cases. And there's a number of reasons for this, but as Professor Ayubi discusses, silence is the wrong approach in both the short and the long term, particularly in the social media age. Being able to show that you can root out bad actors and protect your congregation is better than pretending that you don't have any bad actors, because there are simply too many cases to keep pretending. Silence is basically inaction and it's maintenance of the status quo. So it allows for abusers and predators either to continue abusing people where they are or in new communities where they move to in the future. So I've heard this happen in Texas where there was a sheikh or imam, I don't recall exactly, but maybe Irving, Texas, was implicated and for years people didn't say anything and this person then moved on to another community and because of the silence is still out there at large and is no different from any other sexual predator that might prey upon women and children. So silence is really problematic for that reason alone, you know, not just for stamping out the abuser, but also to protect our own communities in the future. And silence happens because, as you know, I think you may have mentioned earlier, Sexual abuse is a difficult subject. Oftentimes, it's it's taking the very private sexuality is something that's generally very private for Muslims in, in the United States in particular because of a whole host of reasons. I mean, there are people who argue that sexuality is, in fact, at least in the Islamic intellectual tradition, it's not a taboo subject, but certainly it is. A, even if it's not a taboo subject, it's still a very private thing. So the topic is a very difficult one. And it's a result of unfair power differentials, right? Unfair power dynamics between survivors, victims, and the powerful figures in a community whom everyone loves and everyone believes over the poor, exploited person, usually. So that's why silence happens. And silence happens also because Muslim communities are scared of feeding anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobes and feeding them more material to confirm that Islam is, you know, allegedly sexist religion and it's sick and so on and so forth. But that's really the wrong approach because reporting and discussing the issue actually stamps out abusers. And it's the best way in addition to protecting our communities, protecting women, children, and also potentially other men from abuse. It's also the best way to show that Muslims are intolerant of abuse, show everybody that Muslims are intolerant of abuse and are in fact protective of the most vulnerable members of our community. So speaking out, you know, while it may transitionally sort of invite negativity, in the long run, stamping out abuse actually shows greater support of women rather than less support. One of the proposals on how Muslims can help address issues of spiritual and sexual abuse is the increased involvement of women in mosque governance. And it's been seen in the corporate world how increasing the involvement of women in senior leadership roles has gone a long way to reducing harassment. Women in senior positions increases reporting, and once you have reporting, you can start to tackle the issue. Yet there is this pervasive thinking that including women in mosque governance might lead to more abuse. 
Professor Ayubi explains why this type of thinking reflects a serious misconception. More women in leadership will actually decrease the opportunities for spiritual abuse and sexual abuse and sexual harassment at the hands of male religious authority figures. Because to put more women in roles of leadership is actually to decrease the male-dominated nature of religious spaces and religious authority. So Muslim spaces have been and continue to be male-dominated to the point that they are considered to be the dominion of men, right? Like as if they are male spaces that women sort of are welcome to come through, but not really but it actually belongs to men, right? It's this the normativity of the Muslim spaces being male. That contributes to uh, abuse because it's as if women come through are on men's turf and men then have the opportunity to behave as they will, sort of being unchecked because women are actually guests in that in the space that in religious space that men are monopolizing over. So when women are actually more present and are in roles of leadership, actually, that reduces the hold of men only on religious spaces to the point that there is less opportunity for inappropriate activity to take place behind closed doors and things like that. Imagine someone is abusing someone and also, in a way, blackmailing or, or requiring their silence due to using religious language right, or religious justifications. That kind of religious pressure that one might exert upon a victim, it it doesn't hold that potency if, usually it's a male religious authority figure, if that person isn't the only religious authority figure in a given community, but also isn't able to use the kinds of male power dynamic language that might happen over a woman or even children in that matter because religious authority, in fact, may look more gender balanced, right? The paradigm of religious authority changes that way if you have more women in authoritative roles. Another element to consider is prevention. If you look at a few recent high-profile abuse cases involving children, USA Gymnastics and the Second Mile program at Penn State, not to mention all the boarding school cases, trust and opportunity are common elements, but also the ability of predators to deceive. Malcolm Gladwell's latest book, Talking to Strangers, is about the default to trust that people have, and how that leads us to sometimes trust people wrongly. But it's important not to trust anyone blindly, including religious figures, to watch for warning signs and to limit opportunities. And as Professor Ayubi mentions here, Vigilance is perhaps the best defense against abusers. Speaking of opportunity, it's very well known, um, especially in uh, scholars and activists who study child abuse, it's very well known that it's often somebody who's close to the family, if not someone who's within the family, someone close to the family who perpetrates abuse upon, upon children. In the case of adults, again, it's that unparalleled trust that people place, that women may place in religious authority figures because they're religious. They're supposed to be moral and upstanding and clearly not sinless, but certainly mindful of, of any transgressions that they commit and, and certainly not you know perpetrate is evil and wrong. And so that logic of blind trust is actually 
something that opens women and children and other men to abuse, as you said. And what can people do as far as children are concerned? Being vigilant over who is interacting with your children, what kind of relationship your children have with, say, their Quran teacher or their Sunday school teachers or whatever. Really asking questions of the kids and of the teachers and just being very observant and aware of the dynamic is really important. Seeking out literature that is specifically designed for parents to look for warning signs. And there's plenty of literature available. The typical warning signs for whether or not there is an abusive relationship developed or developing between between a child and an adult. That kind of information is out there for parents to look up and to educate themselves and to assume that that wouldn't happen between a Quran teacher or a Sunday school teacher or any other religious authority figure and a child is certainly problematic and naive. And then as far as adults are concerned, you know, as I said, demonopolizing the space as being male only goes a long way as far as making women feel comfortable in religious spaces to the point where they wouldn't necessarily develop an unhealthy relationship with a singular religious authority figure behind closed doors. And inviting women to be part of religious space probably would mitigate the kinds of things that the women may be seeking out in the relationship with an imam or so on. So there's greater opportunities for Islamic learning that happens in group settings so that perhaps the a one-on-one relationship doesn't necessarily have to be the only way. And that's not to say that there aren't great religious authority figures who you can't have one-on-one relationships with. Sure, there are. But to democratize in a way or to widen both religious knowledge and religious spaces, I think, is something that would help with empowering women as far as Islamic knowledge and practices and behaviors that to sort of decrease the reliance on potentially abusive sheikhs and so on. Thank you to Professor Ayubi, and thanks to all of you for your support. I learned a lot in this first season, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share it with you. A small request. If you have a friend that would enjoy Muslim in moderation, please share a podcast link with them. Word of mouth is critical for a niche podcast like this one. Even if you're not stuck in self-quarantine, please visit musliminmoderation.com for previous episodes or to leave feedback. Stay safe out there, everyone. Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.